All right, we're in 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter. Here we go. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all away, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, as we conclude this journey through what your word says about the gifts that you have bestowed on believers, help us remember that without love, those gifts are nothing. Teach us today how to love as you command, not as the world teaches. I remember teaching this passage to the kids a few weeks ago, and we reminded them that you are love. So without you, we have nothing. As we continue to learn how you have specifically gifted each one of us, show us how we can use those gifts to love you your body, and the world around us for your glory and not our own. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe what you have for us today. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. All right, so I'm feeling really good about today's sermon. You know why? Because Jason preached for an hour last week. And I know, um, well... Lord willing, we will not be here uh, for another hour. But um, so I feel really good about that. But you might be wondering, um, what are we doing reading the wedding passage in the midst of all these, this talk about spiritual gifts? And I'll get to that. But before we do that, I want to recap for you where we've been. I want you to think about like what's been meaningful for me this summer because the worst thing that probably we could do, not the worst, but one of the, it's an incomplete thing. It's an insufficient thing that we could do as believers is come and gather uh, without really reflecting on how this has changed me or at least the invitation has been there to change me. That's what we're supposed to be up to, right? This isn't just a road exercise, but it is a path and a step in transformation to become more like Jesus. That's our hope for you um, every week as we gather. Um, is, is that this would be a reminder of the call on our lives and how he is calling us to be transformed into the image of Jesus. So, so just so you know, this is like our 12th week on the Empowered series. It does conclude it. We'll switch gears next week as we look at the neighborhoods, the networks, and the nations, particularly as we go back to school and reestablish some new rhythms. But before we do all that, 
This is where we've been. We started out on Pentecost Sunday, right? This is like back in May where we talked about how um, God has given us a spirit of power. He has empowered us with the presence of his spirit, and he's empowered us to go and be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the other, other parts of the earth, that we are his missionaries. We then talked about how he is the spirit of life. This is all the work of the spirit himself, the Holy Spirit. So not only does he come and empower you, but he's the person of the Trinity that makes you alive together with him. That's called regeneration. He's given you a spirit of life. We talked about the spirit of truth that we would be led into the truth really no matter what, that we would be people, that we'd be guided and counseled and convicted into the truth, which is Jesus, by the way, the truth and the life. That he had he given us the spirit of adoption, right? That we've been brought in to his spiritual family. Doesn't matter what your family was like, doesn't matter where your mom or dad was like, it does matter, but it doesn't matter in this. Is, is that like ultimately your identity isn't in your biological family, but it is now ultimately in your spiritual family as you've been adopted by your father in heaven, by the presence and power of the spirit. He then we then talked about the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And if you looked at that, that the mystery that have been held hidden for ages, for millennia, have now been revealed to you by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life in ways that the Old Testament saints longed to look into. You now have. They've been given these mysteries. We talked about the spirit of holiness, the spirit of sanctification that, again, he's calling us and making us and, and putting our minds on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. We talked about this beautiful, then, spiritual or spirit of generosity, right? And that's where we've been camped out for the last four weeks about the spiritual gifts. And so why are we talking about this wedding passage Ultimately, the one that you had probably read at your wedding and haven't thought about since is because it fits right in the middle of three chapters that are specifically on the spiritual gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is about communion and about prophecy. 1 Corinthians 12, he, he, we've looked at that at length over these last weeks about all these types of different spiritual gifts. Then you have 1 Corinthians 13, and then 1 Corinthians 14 about tongues and about prophecy again. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a standalone. It is right there in the midst of all of it to help us understand that it matters not what our gifts are. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, how awesome you are at preaching, or prophecy, or tongues, or healing, or miracles. You could do all those things, but if it is not done with the priority, and the motive, and the standard of Jesus' love flowing through you, it matters not. Now, we've heard that. We've said that to the one that we love the most, right? Our spouse, many of us. But do we, have we ever like really considered the implications for that, particularly not just in marriage, but now in how we do those neighborhood groups that Carissa just announced? Now in how we actually relate with one another. And so as we, we get into this, like, uh, I don't know about you, but like, I just first want to ask, what's been the most impactful sermon for you or topic for you or reality for you this summer? I just want you to reflect on that. But as we, as we even move forward in all of these things, I wonder if you've caught the priority of that kind of love in all of these spiritual gift passages. So we didn't just talk about 1 Corinthians 12, 
right? We, we read all kinds of passages that if you were looking and if you were, if you were, if you were listening, they were right there. But in, just in case you, you missed it, here's a little recap. We already talked about 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We're here. We just read about that one. How about this other one that we talked about in Ephesians 4? That's where we started on this gift of generosity. It says this in 4, 15, and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. How will we do it? How will we grow up? Speaking the truth with a motive of love. He says, from whom, that's Jesus, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it does what? It builds itself up in love. When we are working together out of our giftedness and priesthood, there's really nothing that can stop that force on the earth. Matter of fact, Jesus proclaimed that and promised that. The gates of hell could not prevail over the church even when we're terrible at living this out, that's the truth. But what would happen if we actually started to live this out? Every part doing its part to build itself up in love. If you saw it in Romans 12, we read that passage before, just the first part of uh, verse 9. It just says this, let love be genuine. There is such a thing as fake love. You've probably all experienced it. I don't need to go into that too much. 1 Peter 4, where I preached out of several weeks ago, we talked about having being stewards of God's grace. It says, above all, above all, above all, all this spiritual gift stuff, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then last week, when Jason preached, he preached out of 2 Timothy 1. And we read it, I want to bring it to the forefront again, just to, just to emphasize again, all of this is love. All of this is rooted in love. For this reason, he says in verse uh, 6 and 7 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And love is permeating all of these passages when we start talking about spiritual gifts about what it is we're called to do and how we're called to live within the body of Christ. Love is everywhere. And I just want to ask and pause real quick. What's going on on the inside of you right now? Are you at the point in this sermon where we're going, oh, we're going to talk about love? Like it's just love, that's what we're going to talk about? I don't know about you, but that's been in my heart throughout this week. Like, like love, that's, I planned all this out. I knew where I was headed, but as, as, as we concluded, I was like, we're going to just talk about love? And then it started to hit me again and again and again and again. In 2011, I wrote, uh, wrote no, I didn't write, I read a book called Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. And he talks about this path of transformation really will never happen unless we have a vision, the intention to reach that vision, and then a strategy or the means to get to that vision. And he tells you to write out a vision statement for your life, and 10 years from now, that was in 2011, it's been 10 years, do you know what my vision for my life was? And you can be the judge on whether or not I, I succeeded or not. The vision for my life in 2011 that I would hopefully see in 2021, um, I'm going to blame COVID, uh, which is that, um, that I would love people in such a way that it would be obvious to them, that I wouldn't have to tell them I love them but that I would actually start to tell them I love them. Because I'm not real good at that. I'm not real good at telling people I love them. 
But it started there and that I would make it an obvious effort to actually love them and they would feel it and know it and it would be obvious. They would never have to question. That was an obvious thing that like, I think that a lot of people questioned whether or not I loved them back in 2011. Thank God you didn't know me, right? My wife, oh, my poor wife. Thank you, Lord. But nonetheless, like 10 years later, like have I really mastered this thing called love? And that was the thing that hit me, like, oh, we're going to do love? Yeah, yeah, you need it still. Like, we don't graduate from the kind of love with which God is calling us to deploy these spiritual gifts to and with one another. So I absolutely, you absolutely need this because there is no greater vision for your life than to love like Jesus loved. And I'm going to unpack that for us as we go through and we talk about the spirit of love. All right, so it's no wonder then, if, if there's no greater vision for our life than to love like Jesus loved, it is no wonder then that Paul calls this in the last verse of this previous chapter, 1231, he says, and now after all this talk about the gifts of healing and tongues, interpretations, higher gifts, prophecy, all these things, and he says, and now I will show you still a more excellent way. That's the header to 1 Corinthians 13, the more excellent way of love. So first, we've got to understand biblical love because um, all love is not love. As much as the world wants to redefine what love is, all love is not biblical love. And so the English language is not real good at having nuance and texture like other languages. And so like Greek has four words for love. Uh, and, and a couple of them are in the New Testament actually. So one is phileo, which is like brotherly love, affectionately love, affectionate love like friendships. Then you have eros, which is where we get the word erotic. Um, that actually is not in the New Testament, but nonetheless, it is uh, an appropriate understanding of love. Uh, then there's storge, which is familial love. Like it's not just uh, brotherly, like friendship love. It is this, this love of, of, of belonging, right? And then you've got the height of, of Greek love, which is agape. This idea of agape love is the kind of love with which God loves the world. Like you know the passage, John 3, 16, for God so loved, loved the world that he demonstrated it. He sent, he gave his one and only son. It's agape there. This agape love, when you start to really peel back the layers of it, the way that we've described it over the years here at the Grove is pursuing another's good at any personal cost. Let that sit down on you. Pursuing another's good at any personal cost. Whom do you love with that kind of love? You've probably got some people in your life that you love with a self-sacrificing love. Your children, your spouse, like no child will mature unless the mother and father at some point die to themselves in the middle of the night over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, and, and, and gives that baby what they need in nourishment and in care and in encouragement and in comfort so they can be ultimately mature over time and grow, not just in their like, bodily growth, but also in their emotional security. That happens all in those moments, right? 
it's in that that we all understand that what agape is. It's, 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 the, it's the love of a parent to a child. It has to be. And where that's not there, things go way sideways. Agape, pursuing another's good at any personal cost. I want you to get your mind around this. The New Testament, Jesus himself is going to put before you the challenge and the demand, the law, the new law that he'll say, hey, don't just love your spouse like this. Don't just love your kids like this. Love one another with this agape kind of love. Do you see that in this church? Do you see that in your friendships? Do you see that in your relationships? Do you see that in your neighborhood group? Do you see self-sacrificial, I'm pursuing your good, even if it means my death? That I will pursue your good, even if you reject me as a result of me pursuing your good? Even if the relationship dies as me as a result of pursuing your good, I will pursue that good because that's the kind of love with which Jesus has loved me and then calls us to then love one another. Not just spouse, not just children. Like, have you ever really thought about how many people you would really die for? I had a professor in seminary uh, that kind of told these stories. He always loved to go out to concerts and so he'd be like, I was at this concert, and I was out at 2 in the morning in downtown Dallas, and he'd always be like, and it's none of your business what I was doing there. Okay. He goes, but somebody uh, like came up to us and, and, and wanted our, our money. And in that moment, I realized I don't really want to die for my wife. Like, are we really ready to die for other people? Whether it be in that moment or, or, or hopefully way less serious moments, but also with the same kind of gravity, like someone else can have life if I lay down my life. If I choose to die, someone else might live. That's the kind of agape love that we're talking about. I'm, I'm harping on this because after almost 20 years in ministry off and on, I do not think that we pursue agape love enough. We, su- we, we pursue phileo love. I'm just looking for friends. I'm just looking for my tribe. I'm just looking for my people. That's what we prioritize again and again. But it's the agape love that God is calling us to. Did you know that it's the phileo love that Jesus found insufficient in Peter when he says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah. He's saying, do you agape me? He said, yeah. I phileo you. I brotherly love you. Until he breaks him down that that is not sufficient to lead people and to love people well, you've got to have some self-sacrificing agape love for Jesus, not to mention anyone else. This is what Jesus said in uh, his last night in John 13. If you know me at all, been in any sort of discipling relationship with me at all, you know I'm obsessed with this passage, John 13, 34, and 35, which says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you agape one another. You lay yourself down for the sake of someone else living. Just as I have agaped you, you also are to agape one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have agape for one another. You see how it's going beyond your tribe? Matter of fact, Jesus would say, what good is it if you love someone who loves you? That's what the tax collectors do. Oh, sick burn, Jesus. And yet I feel it. 
We have a propensity to only love those who do something for us, don't we? And Jesus is saying, no, no, even your enemies, just as I have loved you, so you love one another. Have you just sat down and thought about how Jesus has loved you? And has that really captured your heart this week? I pray it does in the following week, if it has it in a while, that he's predestined you, he's adopted you, he's made you holy and perfect in the sight of his Father, that he's filled you with his spirit, that he purchased you, that he guarantees the inheritance, that he sees you as so valuable that you're actually his inheritance, that he loved you with a kind of enemy love, that you were once enemies of him. You were hostile in mind, running away from him, and as you did, you were showing him where heaven was, as if he didn't know. That's truly who you were. It's not who you are. Who you are is blood-bought again, forgiven forever, brought into the family of God. And what a beautiful picture it is that we were elected, adopted. We were once enemies. Now he has served us. He's filled us. He now testifies to us by his spirit. Beautiful reminders that we are his. I mean, if you really thought about how he loves you, it's in that kind of way we would love other people. What end do you see of that kind of love? Is there an end to it? No. So I would ask as we finish up point one and into point two, if you prioritize living this kind of agape love, how would it change your life? How could it change your life? Because understanding biblical love is one thing, but ultimately Paul wants us to practice biblical love. He wants us to know how to use these spiritual gifts, but more importantly, that we would be fueled by the more excellent way. That's why he says at the end of 12 and the beginning of 14, I will show you the more excellent way. And then he says, pursue love. So may we pursue love and let us first then define it. You see, 1 Corinthians does two things for us when it comes to love. It gives us the vision for what love is. And then I I loved how Jason's um, uh, illustration last week where he said he was teaching his his daughter how to drive and then she went over here and then she totally overcorrected and then went off the ditch over here. I've done that in real life. It is like twice. It's not fun. But I think 1 Corinthians 13 gives us the vision, gives us the pathway, and then puts rumble strips down to say, don't go over there. That's not love, but this is. And so there's a few things that it, 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 it kind of uh, points the way for us. Here's what agape looks like. By the way, all throughout 1 Corinthians 13, when it says love, that word there is agape. It's not any other word. It is the self-sacrificial love. And at first, the, the first thing that it paints the picture on where we're headed is that it says love is patient, And love is kind. Patient is just a forbearance with one another. Uh, And I would just ask, like, when someone else uses their gift or they're growing in using their gift, what's going on on the inside of you in those moments? Are you patient? Are you kind? When you see a culture of development, which is what ultimately we want, we want to not just make disciples but develop them, so they can be sent out into the world planting churches and whatever else, as that environment happens, will you be patient? Will you be kind? You see, this kind of love will kill competitiveness in the church. It will kill all sorts of, of, of impatience, of course, right? But also consumerism will die in a culture where it is patient and it is kind towards one another. 
You see, love slows down for others. That's what patience means. It's also kind. It's merciful. It has a posture of goodness for others. That's that word for kindness. If you just took those two qualities of patience and kindness, what would your marriage look like? What would your parenting look like? Oh, man. All right, we're cutting to the core now. But there's more, right? I feel like there's like a late night um, television commercial. But wait, there's more for this vision. It's not just patient. It's not just kind. The other positive that it kind of puts before us is that it rejoices in the truth. The the second half, uh, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth in verse 6. So my question is, do you rejoice in the truth? Truth is a hard thing to rejoice in, y'all. Do you rejoice in the truth about yourself? Do you rejoice in the truth about what love is? Do you rejoice in the truth about what love isn't? See, that is a difficult thing. Are you, are you rejoicing in the truth about your shortcomings in love? Are you rejoicing in the truth about God's relentless desire for you to grow in this? That's what it looks like. That's what it's pointing the way. But it also does some things, right? In verse 7 and 8, Paul lays out for us, it says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Ultimately, it's this. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, love sees you through just as you are. Like, have you ever gotten tired of loving someone because they just keep doing the same old thing? If you haven't, you're not a parent. My gosh, clean your room, clean your drawers, pick up your socks. I'm charging you money now. Like the penalty is growing. Like over and over and over again. It's just nonsense. Like do you not just feel this in those familiar relationships? Surely then you will feel this in God's family as well. Just stick around long enough and you'll just be like, yeah, yeah, it's just kind of how you are, man. And it drives me nuts. But it bears all things. That's what true love does. It bears all things, it, it hopes, it believes that you will and are becoming someone that you're currently not, that we're all in progress, and it starts at self-examination. There is a saint that has long passed, and he is now with the Lord, but his name was Brennan Manning, and his kind of like, I don't know, his, his, his song that he sang on a pretty consistent basis was this. Like he would ask, do you really believe that God loves you? Because God loves you unconditionally, just as you are, and not as you should be, because you will never be, or because no one is as they should be. And all the Enneagram ones in here just went, oh, thank God. If you don't know what that is, that's fine. Because We will never be. No one is as we should be. Do you believe that about yourself? Because it will kill every bit of Pharisaism in you. If you realize, I am not yet as I should be. I still fall short. Just had lunch this week talking about the grace of God with someone and how God has shown up again and again and again in their life. And they ended it with, and I'm still a moron with God. And I'm like, yes, Lord, I can hang out with that dude. That's us. We're still chief sinners on the way. But now let's see what those rumble strips are. Not just this vision of it bears all things, it hopes all things, it loves us unconditionally just as we are today and not some future version of ourselves. But the broken, messed up version. That's the kind of love with which God loves us and calls us then to say, now love another. But now what isn't it? What are the rumble strips on the road? 
Lots of rumbling here, and I, I, we got to get real narrow on this lane. But here it says this. At the end of uh, verse 4, it really starts to go in, right? Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, ouch, or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Let's just run through these rapid fire, right? Does not envy. Like, um, I think one of the things that doesn't bother me, yeah, it bothers me, if I could just be really vulnerable here. One of the things that bothers me the most is when people start to talk about our church or another church, and they go, oh, you don't know what you're missing, like the preaching and like the children's programs and the this and the that, it's awesome. And we take people out of a loving community where they're supposed to be building family for the sake of consumerism that, by the way, the Grove will never live up to. Matter of fact, we've sat with many people, some people that have left over the years, over the eight plus nine years of being here, and some of them, beautiful reasons. Some, re- some reasons are like, well, the preaching was just really good over there, and I got to tell you, like, they had like a slide for the kids, and like, our kids loved that, and it's like, that's all fine and well. You know that's not our vision, right? Our vision is family. That's our vision. And that is not to say that we're in competition with anybody else. It is to say we need to be checked in our hearts and the Bible belt about how consumerism is in us for anybody, like church body, that we're choosing. That we're here, if we really get down to it, to get something out of this. Are we not? Of course we are. It's part of it. But it can't be the whole thing. It can't be the entire thing does not envy, does not have competition, does no coveting here. I'm like, oh man, I wish I had that. Boy, that's hard for me. When I go into a new building of a church, and I just go, ooh-wee, heart of coveting is coming out. No, 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 get back in, go away. It does not boast. You know the Greek word for boast? Windbag. Hilarious. <laughs> Love it. We need to use that word more often. You're a windbag does not boast, right? Isn't this what most of what's on social media? We're just boasting. Uh, oh, oh, okay, all right. We don't, we don't, we don't, this is a person that promotes oneself. Love is not arrogant, is not puffed up or prideful, but gentle and lowly, again, in the context of gift deployment, we're here to support and build up others. It is not rude. I saw a meme this week that I thought was very appropriate to is not rude, which said this, How you say, quote, representative to an automated system is the real you. (laughs) That is the truth. That representative, oh my gosh. That's the real you. It is not rude. One of the coaches that I coach with, she's told me this many times. You know, many times I go out to eat or I hang out with other Christians and we go to uh, 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 restaurants and you know I watch them. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure you do. And she's like, yeah, I watch them, and I want to see how they act with those that serve them. Because if they treat them like jerks, I know that Jesus isn't real to them. Oh, dang. All of a sudden, I go, have I ever been out to eat with you? Hang on. <laughs> and how did I do? But guess what? You're, you're being watched, too. They're just not saying it to you. You're being watched, too, whether it be by the server who's serving you. Which, by the way, tip generously. What are, what are we doing? Represent Jesus, right? But they're watching you. You're being watched. Will we be a people who is not rude, 
does not insist on its own way. It's the essence here of Christian love. And the basis for all agape is not just forgetting who you are. It's counting the cost. I'm going to die in some way and doing it anyway. Love is not irritable. Mm, I, man, I got to tell you, I would like to take that one out. If we could just copy and paste, cut, Love is not, do you get easily angered by those around you when you say you're taking a road trip with your family over the summer? No? Just me? Do you get easily angered by those around you? Is not irritable. Love is not that way. Love is not resentful, does not count up wrongdoings. I love what other uh, uh, passages or other translations will say. Love is not scorekeeping. Some of the most loving, uh, some of the least loving people I know are scorekeepers. We all are scorekeepers. The ones that put the score at the top of the list. Those that are holding you accountable to a scorecard that you didn't even know you were on until something goes wrong. And believe you me, they got a score and you're not winning. That's why love cannot keep a record of wrongs, a record of wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice and wrongdoing, not only does it not keep a record, but it also doesn't rejoice in evil. The kind of wrongdoing is that of injustice against another. You cannot say you're a Christian ultimately and rejoice when you see other people being victims of injustice. Incompatible. No matter if you look like them, vote like them, agree with them or not. Incompatible to rejoice over injustice. Love cannot rejoice at the conduct that harms another, period. And as we move forward, right, that's practicing biblical love. That's this rumble strips of these things that just aren't what it's supposed to be, and yet this great vision of kindness and patience and rejoicing in the truth, much less anything else that comes along and bearing all that comes along with it. Finally, as we end this, as you notice this priority of biblical love. Look at the verse, two chapters here. Excuse me, two verses. If I speak, speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Could you imagine speaking in the tongues of angels? Some of you are like, yeah, I can't imagine. That's what I do. But could you speak in the tongues of the languages of the world? I, mean, I, don't, I don't know Spanish all that well, but I want to. I pray for the gift of tongues. I don't want to really work on that. I just want the miracle. But if I can do all that, if I could speak eloquently in these languages, and I hope you see here, the categories of the spiritual gifts are right here. If I speak with the tongues, gift of speech, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I thought about just going back here and just clanging on the cymbal for a little while and see if you feel loved while I do it. That's what he's talking about. That's how pointless it all is. He says, okay, gift of, of, of speech, now the gift of signs. If I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all the faith, so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. It becomes pointless. Your whole, your whole body of work, trash. And then a gift of service, if I give my all I have away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned or in such a way as to boast over, that's really the, kind of the, the, the essence of that word there. If I give everything away so, just, so, just so that I could boast that I'm really generous, man, if I don't have any love in that, I gain nothing. The priority of love is all throughout 
See, here's the bottom line, and I could go on, especially in the bottom half of this passage, about how it's the only thing that will endure forever. Faith, hope, and love, these three things abide. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because ultimately, at the end of time, when that perfect comes, which is, by the way, not the canon of Scripture, but Jesus himself, when he comes, what will go away? He says the spiritual gifts will pass away. Prophecies will cease. Tongues will go away when Jesus comes. Your gifts of service, speech, and signs will at some point go away, and it won't matter in eternity. You know what will matter? Not even faith or hope. Those are the things that get you through this life. You have faith that Jesus has saved me of my sins, that you have a hope that once again he will come back and do what he said, that I will make all things new, all things including us, right? Out of Revelation, that's the hope that we have but it's the love that endures all things. Our hope will be fulfilled in Jesus when we see him face to face. Our faith, we won't need it anymore because we'll see it with our eyes. But that agape love, that's the fuel for all of eternity. Not just for the here, but for the then and there. But it also means for here. Did you know the world is looking at us just like I just told that story about one of the softball coaches watching me or watching other Christians. It is the very thing, this kind of, of love is the very thing which becomes our greatest statement to the world. That's what Jesus said. By this kind of love, the world will know that you're my guys, that you're my gals, if you love one another. There was a missiologist that came along a lot later in the 1970s, and he wrote this. His name is Leslie Newbigin. I'm going to use a word in here that says hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is just basically trying to figure out how it's true. Leslie Newbigin says this, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible? You want to know how you can become credible in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, networks, and nations? How is it that the gospel will become believable and real and trustworthy? That people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. How could this even be true? And he says, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic, the only way the world will see if this is true or not, if the gospel truly is, Credible is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Will you live in this kind of love? Not just brotherly love, we're trying to find our people. Not just erotic love, which is the world is absolutely captivated by. Not just even familial belonging kind of love, but the kind of love which puts another and their need over the needs of myself, and this is the caveat, no matter what. That's a tough ask. And yet, Jesus doesn't command us to do these things without being the model himself. It's why he says, as I have loved you, so you love one another. May we be a people who loves like this. So I have a question as we end. How are you doing in becoming a person who is known for their love? What would your life, what would you have to do 
over the next 10 years of your life to become someone whose love for Jesus and others is obvious. I've done this little inventory before. I won't do it now for the sake of time, but like if I, if I, if I wanted to, I could, right? Who's taken the spiritual gift assessment? And some of us would raise our hand, right? And we, t- we get real excited about spiritual gift assessments. Have you ever done um, like an agape love assessment? They don't have those on the internet, by the way. You know why? Because it would be false. You know who you ask that question of? Not the internet, not Google. People in your community with. Would you go to lunch today, Torchies or wherever you are, and, and have this conversation? Hey, how are you experiencing me as a person who is called to love others? Oh, we getting real now. Maybe it's not lunch. But it should be in a public place probably. <laughs> How are you experiencing me? Not how am I. It's not a statement of who you are. But what's your experience of me? As a person who is longing to love like Jesus loved, what's your experience? Maybe you could do that in your neighborhood group if you're meeting. No, that'd be a vulnerable place, wouldn't it? But here's what I know about vulnerable places. It's where life gets birthed. You could hide. You could not ask. You could go, okay, well, if that's what they're asking today, I'm out on neighborhood group, I'm super busy all the rest of the day, and I'm just not available. But what if there was something greater to be had, and you had an honest reflection of who we are, or at least someone's experience of us? We repented, we confessed, and we trusted in Jesus along the way. Let's find out, and let's pray. Well, Jesus, we love you. We are grateful that you love us. Not in a superficial kind of way, but in a self-sacrificing kind of way. Lord, you say in your word, greater love has no one than this. That someone would lay down his life for his friends. Of course, it's in keeping with loving your enemy. Of course, it's in keeping and forgiving your brother 70 times, seven times. Is that enough, oh Lord? No, no, no. Keep going till the end. Bear it all. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another as I've loved you. All of us fall short of this in this room. Because that's true, we all have something in common, and that is our need for your love. Our need to remember the grace that we have in your son Jesus, who died on the cross for sinners who so loved the chief of sinners that you demonstrated your love, you made it obvious, your love was made obvious in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, forever and ever, died a dead death for those that were wandering and running and rebelling so that we could come out of the grave so that we could live forever with you, so that we could have new purpose and new identity and a new ability to love like you've loved us. What would the world look like if we would love like you loved us? What would would our marriages look like if we just put the center, the kind of love which you loved us? Parenting, work, all of it. 
I pray that you'd set a fire to this local body, this church, and the churches everywhere, that we would be set a fire by the conviction to love as you've loved us. May we honor you in these things, and may we glorify and magnify you, not just in song, but with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.